to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. That's Brother Trucker, and they're tuned downtown, kicking off our conversation here on Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Hey, a quick shout-out to our local business partners here in the Des Moines metro. Thanks to Gateway Market and Cafe at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Gateway also has a fantastic catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been working on creatures large and small for over 30 years at Story County Veterinary Clinic. And thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street, between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. That's Ritual Cafe. Finally, thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant, located on Southeast 14th Street in Des Moines, where you can get authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with ex- excellent and friendly service at Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. Okay, folks, again, welcome to the program, and thanks to the community-owned stations around Iowa and around the country that rebroadcast this program. You can also hear it as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website. That's FallonForum.com. And, of course, uh, we put out a blog about what's uh, happening. If you'd like to sign up for that, again, you can sign up on the Fallon Forum website or just send me a message at ed at fallonforum.com. So later in the program, we're going to be talking about some of the new new, the, the new news every day, some new news on climate change. We're going to be talking about what happens, what happened in Ireland recently, where the second nation in the world to declare a climate emergency. We'll also talk about... Um, Talk about how the parts per million of climate in the atmosphere just went up to a level that it has never been at in human history. Uh, we'll also talk about the um, aftermath of the Paradise, California fire uh, with uh, uh, an Iowa woman who has family there and can report on how that's been going. It's not going as well as one would hope. We'll also talk with uh, Jeff Biggers, an author from Iowa City, about um, his challenge to Iowa City about stepping up on climate action, as a lot of communities around the country are doing. And speaking of Iowa City authors, in the studio with me is Andy Douglas. Andy, welcome to the uh, program. Thanks, Ed. So um, you wrote, you've written a couple, you've written a couple books now. Mm-hmm. You're a, you've got a book problem. <laughs> I, I wrote one and I'm done. I'll never write another book. I, I don't believe it. I don't <laughs> you believe don't believe it? it? Okay. No. Jeff is the author of The Curve of the World into the Spiritual Heart of Yoga and more recently wrote Redemption Songs which addresses um, a community's effort through song and choir to bring hope to uh, the incarcerated. Yeah, that's right. Um, For seven years, I've been a member of the Oakdale Community Prison Choir, which uh, combines the efforts of people coming in from outside the Oakdale Prison, which is located in Coralville. About 30 community folks come in and 30 or 40 incarcerated men. And uh, we join together once a week uh, under the guidance of a director who's a, a University of Iowa hmm. professor of music, Mary right. Cohen. Right. And we just kind of mold together from nothing a program of, uh, of songs, and then we give a couple of concerts every season. So uh, it's really been a powerful experience for me just to go in and learn more about prison issues, but mostly just to get to know these guys see them as human beings, connect on a, on a level of creating something together and uh, enjoying our time together. Now, having done work in the prison system myself, I, I know that even as a lawmaker, 
it's a little bit difficult sometimes to break through the bureaucracy and allow something out of the box to to happen. Did you have that experience, or or was this a, was this something they were immediately on board with? Well, I'm not the person who set up the choir, but uh, Mary Cohen uh, pitched it back in 2009 to the then warden Daniel Craig, and uh, I think he was he was open to it. I think many of the Iowa. Uh, administrators of the prison system have been pretty open to bringing in different kinds of programs, uh, especially having the University of Iowa in Iowa City. There's a lot of overlap and a lot of people coming in yeah. uh, to offer book clubs, writing groups, anger management programs, a lot of mm. different projects mm-hmm. to, to give uh, insiders Opportunities and, and and really giving them opportunities is what's what it's all about because otherwise they'd just be sitting there. And now, how big of a choir are we talking <clears throat> about here? Um, it has ranged, but it's up to about seventy-five people now. Really, and and, yeah. and what? How many of them are uh, half and are, half? Half and half. Okay, yeah. wow. Yeah. All right, that's a big choir. It is. And it you is. have uh, you have four sections: soprano and alto, you as bet. well as tenor and bass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there are people with a lot of musical skill, and there are people who have never sung in a choir before. Mm. So I give a lot of props to Mary Cohen, who just kind of understands how to bring people together and and create something. Is this fairly unique in prisons? Um, recently, it's become more widespread. There's an interest in doing more arts programs in prisons. Mm-hmm. So. In the book, I mention a number of, of prisons around the country where community uh, where, where prison choirs are taking root, but it's not as widespread as we would hope, or as it has been in the past. You know, back before for the nineteen eighties, there were a lot of arts programs in the so, prisons. So, what, what caused those to die off? Well, uh, a couple of things. One was uh, one was that. Uh, more and more people started to get incarcerated. Right. The numbers and have gone through the roof everywhere, including Iowa. That's right. And, uh, you know, resources were being put into just finding beds for them and getting the basic stuff going. There wasn't a lot of thought about uh, about extraneous programs. And, and the other is that I think there's a, there's a, uh, a perception or a mentality that, uh, that took root around that time that we shouldn't be coddling or uh, doing anything special for these people. They're there to be punished. We should put them away and forget about them, you know? Yeah. So that, that mentality has kind of uh, grown quite, and, and ebbed over the years. It's quite an evolution from the uh, the original concept of a penitentiary where you were sent to do penance. Mm-hmm. And hopefully through doing penance, uh, you know, Make yourself whole again. Make your connection with the community and your victims whole again. That's that's kind of the key concept behind restorative justice, yeah. which is the idea of uh, making whole again. All of the all of the parties that are affected when a crime is committed. So the community is torn apart. The victim, of course, is affected. The families, but also the person who commits the crime, uh, their life. You know, they're being put away. Uh, and I, I'm not arguing that they should not be held accountable. I certainly am. But we need to think seriously about how we do that. Is it just all about punitive measures or should right. we offer opportunities for them but, to And a lot of the change. folks who uh, – I mean, I was, I, was in, I was in the state legislature during, I, I would say, the worst of the, um, of the uh, get tough on crime era. Uh, it, really, it really was – get tough on crime was the, uh, the, the motto, but it was um, really very – 
very, 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 very much uh, get get um, get punitive on crime mm-hmm. to the point that it stopped making any sense. I mean, the, the number of people being locked up for trivial reasons. I remember I remember meeting a woman at the uh, prison in Mitchellville who was in for three years for stealing a winter hat for her kid. Yeah, it's like Les three Miserables. years for stealing a hat for a kid because your kid's cold and it's the winter. Yeah, you know. I, <laughs> yeah. Or how many people are in for uh, a, a minor drug offense mm-hmm. um, where they, they they didn't hurt anybody else? They just happened to break a law that, well, the marijuana laws, for example. I think I think it's it's increasingly clear that the majority of people in this country think that marijuana should not be criminalized. Yeah. Um, we've moved we've moved to the point where there's you know near universal acceptance of its role as. As, as medicinal in some cases. In many cases now, it's also being regarded as something that, you know, well, if people want to recreate with it, let them do it. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I think, I think um, we're seeing a turning point. And maybe that's helped. Maybe that's also helped you and other people to want to bring art and music and other programs like that into the prisons. I, I think so. I think there is a, a turning point happening. Um, it's still, I mean, we still have... You know, 25% of the world's prisoners in 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 the United States. Right. And what, and what 5% of the population? 5% of the population. So wow. it's just that ridiculous. That says volumes, doesn't it? It, it really Gosh. does. Yeah. Sentencing is a real problem. We, we're kind of addicted to giving overly long sentencing. And, and fortunately, right. they're starting to think about that yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. Well, and part of our problem, too, is you've seen the privatization of prisons. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, That's they're, right. They're now money-making ventures. And, yeah. of course, if you want to make money, you've got to keep your – your facility full. You have you know? to keep your facility full. You have to hold on to your inmates longer than, right. on, in general, than, than the but state it, prisons. Despite that, uh, it seems like some of the private prison operators are at least on board with some level of sentencing reform. Which, um, which surprised when I, I heard that recently. I was surprised. I am surprised. But, but, but what, I, what, I, what, I, what my understanding was that they're also they, – they aren't just in the business of locking people up. They're also in the business of helping to provide uh, different types of programs that, that – uh, diversion programs that keep people, out of, keep people out of prison but still, you know, give them clientele to work with. But, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I would say, you know, beyond that, the whole concept of privatizing something is – as central to a working democracy as a prison system is is, is barbaric. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks like a good deal when they go into a community and offer all these jobs. But uh, as you said, they have to keep the prisons yeah. full. So it means the local community has to keep arresting people and locking so them up. So your book seems timely because, again, more and more, <clears throat> more, and more people are interested in restorative justice. Uh, not just people, but politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, nearly everybody knows somebody who is either, either, either in prison or has been in prison. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, there's a large constituency now that wants to see a better approach. And, and your book, uh, your book Redem- Re- sorry, Redemption Songs, uh, A Year in the Life of a Community Prison Choir, uh, sounds like it's, it's well-timed for an audience that uh, would be receptive and interested. I, I hope so. There's been a lot of interest in the book. Uh, it came out in April, and um, the book has been selling well, and I have a lot of readings and, and talks lined up. Um, yeah. Including one here in uh, Beaverdale. That's in right. On recently. Wednesday evening, I'll be reading at Beaverdale, Beaverdale Books at 6.30 this coming Wednesday. Okay, Beaverdale Books here in Des Moines. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, that's the obligatory book tour that after, you, after you read the book, right? <laughs> well, you know about that. Oh, gosh, do I ever. <laughs> that was kind of brutal. <laughs> but uh, And I may be doing that again. We'll see. But uh, uh-huh. right now uh, right now there are other, other priorities to focus uh, my own energies on. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so – Folks, uh, 
this is Andy Douglas uh, joining us. He's an author from Iowa City. He's uh, written a book called uh, Redemption Songs and um, has been instrumental in uh, helping with a 75-voice choir. Uh, half, uh, half the voices are incarcerated at the Oakdale Prison near Iowa City, and the other half are community members who believe in trying to uh, bring art and music into the lives of people who otherwise might find little to be hopeful about. So. One of the interesting things about the choir is that it has certain spin-offs. So a lot of the men are writing many of the songs we sing oh, wow. now. Okay. And there's a lot of powerful emotion that goes in these songs. They tell their life stories. Uh, they talk about their, their regret, you know. And, and so I think that, that the arts, uh, songwriting, choirs, other types of writing are, are a powerful tool for uh, helping many of these men to work through yeah. some of their, their issues, you Good. know. Well, excellent work, Andy. Ah, thanks, Ed. Thank you. <laughs> Folks, when we come back, we're going to talk to uh, our second Iowa City author. This is a coincidence, actually. Uh, Jeff Biggers has, um, has written a couple interesting books and also recently an editorial where he is critical of, uh, of some of the efforts being made to address the climate crisis at the local level. We'll talk with uh, Jeff when we come back from a short break here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music, and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa Farms and Iowa Producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. 
From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, as we continue our conversation with um, various guests of great interest. That's right. Jeff Biggers is an author from Iowa City. And uh, yeah, I've met Jeff recently. He was in Des Moines to speak at the uh, the uh, Dingman Award uh, Award presentation here. For This is an annual event that gives uh, a prestigious award to someone who's been very instrumental in working for peace and justice. In this case, it went to... Uh, Carolyn Walker for her efforts on climate change. So climate change is an issue that we're all concerned about. Um, and uh, a growing number of people understand that it is a crisis. And around the country, a growing number of communities are really beginning to step up to the plate. One would think that in a community like Iowa City, that would be happening. Um, I actually have you know I, I I get along pretty well with the leadership, the political leadership in Iowa City, so I was surprised this morning to read that um, maybe they're not doing what they should be. I want to have that conversation now with Jeff Biggers. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ed. Good yeah. morning. So anyway, um, there are there are places all over the country that are really starting to take climate change seriously, and now we have two countries, Great Britain and Ireland, that have declared climate emergencies. Your concern with Iowa City is that they're not stepping up to the plate the way that they should be, given the depth of the problem, correct? Right. You know, uh, last fall, uh, after essentially uh, delaying for two years, Iowa City finally uh, put forth a a climate action plan, Mm -hmm. like many towns and cities are doing. And theoretically, it looked okay. It was saying that we're going to do what the Paris Climate Accords ask of us, which is try to reduce our emissions by 26% by 25, 2025, 2030, and then, you know, shoot for 80% by 2050. And so, you know, if, by hearing this, you say, well, that's, that's good, or they're committing to the climate accords. But one week, as you know well, after the climate plan was released, and this once again had been delayed over two years, they spent $80,000 on an out-of-town consultant, as if Iowa City doesn't have anybody to work on it. <laughs> why, you know, why, why was that? Why was that? I never, I I never understand when governments hire somebody from outside of their jurisdiction to do a study that can easily be done by folks within the community. I never get that. I don't understand that. It's just a matter of yeah. lowest bid. Is that it? No, it's a matter of uh, city staff somehow buying into this need of 
of working with certain agencies from big cities. And, and that's a whole other story. Right. What concerned me is a week after their plan comes out, we, of course, have the U.N. release the IPCC report, which says, you know, folks, you know, Paris is, is faltering completely. We're not even reaching that. But if we're truly serious about this, we've got to, you know, redouble our efforts and actually double our efforts. We've got to cut our carbon emissions by 45% within the next 11, 12 years. Right. We've got to reach zero emissions. And, and that's, that was and pretty that's, much That's not recognized. a political goal. That's not a political goal. That's a, science, that's a goal that has been given to us by science. All right. So, so already there, essentially before the program was even introduced, it was out of date. Now, here's where things got very fuzzy. You know, suddenly Iowa City then declares, well, heck, we've already reached our, our goal. We almost don't have to do anything. And so then I began to really look at the details of the, of the, of the climate plan itself. And 95% of the, of the plan, Ed, and this is which really is very sad, really relies on the, the shift at Mid-American that obviously has gone from coal to wind. Mid-American American energy, yeah. Right. And we're very proud of the fact. We all know last week they had a record day. We know they're shifting. You know, but at the end of the day is if you claim the credit of Mid-American as your entire climate plan, then you essentially are saying we don't have to do anything. You know, we have over a hundred and forty-two so, so, cities. So, so hey, hang on, really just, hang on, yeah. just so okay. just just a little little bit of more background is needed for people who might not be totally up to speed. You said Mid American did did what specifically? They had a, a day where they were, what was that about? They were mostly producing electricity from wind, or right? So Mid American, which serves seven hundred thousand customers in the Iowa area, right, has invested billions of dollars into shifting into wind turbines. Right. And, of course, their goal is to become one of the, the top utility companies with wind energy. And, of course, we know this is Warren Buffett. Right. <laughs> now, last, last week, because of this investment, you know, we have to give them credit. They actually turned out almost 80% of their electricity for a certain area of Iowa was from wind last week. And, of course, that's not every day. Typically, it's closer to about 45, 50 and, and, and why was that? Was that because the wind was blowing harder than usual? Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And, okay, so yeah, I guess I, I'm having a hard time understanding why when the average elect, electrical generation is, what, a little less than 40 percent, suddenly it could be nearly double? Yeah, I guess there's... My, my there's mind's not wrapping around that somehow. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, right. Okay. So, uh, and, and that's just a one-day spike, and then we go back to, but, but the truth is they're doing well. I think what concerns me is that's not a climate plan. And when a city basically says, we don't have to do anything, we can just rely on a utility company that, meanwhile, has been ruthless in its monopoly to try to keep out solar energy and other kind of decentralized right, clean right. energy, you know, it really is a setback. And it's even worse, Ed, because this is the situation. You know, we have over 140 cities now in the United States that have committed to 100% renewable energy within the next decade. And this includes even towns like um, St. Louis, which is the belly of the beast of coal companies. Sure. Now, think about it. St. Louis is historically the coal capital. It's where Peabody and every other major coal company had been based. And there the city council actually stuck its neck out and said, hey, we're going to do something. We're going to commit to 100% renewable energy. So Iowa City could have been in the forefront, and this has been our, 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 our feeling for, for many years now. We have a very progressive mayor, we have a very progressive city council, and yet what they have done is submit to the inertia 
and ultimately the incompetence of a city staff that is just simply unwilling to make the moves to be a climate leader. They're why, willing to do why the is worst. That? Why, yeah. why is that? Why, why, would, why would a council and a mayor that are that progressive and that aware of the dangers of doing nothing in the face of climate change, why, why, would, they, uh, why would they allow that to happen? You know, that's the $64,000 question that's just <laughs> never, ever been answered. I, I think we have a, uh, a major structural problem in most of our cities. And, and I know David Orr in Oberlin, who's, who's a great environmental leader, has been working on this, is that at the end of the day, the cities are run not by councils, but they're run by the city manager. Right. And the city manager ultimately has not gone through an urban planning and urban training that looks at climate change as a framework for development. Often, as you know well, climate change and so-called sustainability is like agenda item number 23 after we've talked about liquor permits. You know? <laughs> and, and dog barking and potholes. Don't barking. forget potholes and, and dogs. <laughs> as opposed to saying, hey, folks, it's 2019. We're in the midst of a climate breakdown. The U.N. just announced that we've entered the sixth mass extinction. One million species will be lost in the lifetime of our children. Right. Well, one, out of every, one out of every eight species will be lost. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, and therefore we have to see climate as the framework for all development, not right. the end. Right. And so I feel like ultimately this is our problem. We have staff that, are, once again, really good people, good Iowan people, very nice, but who basically aren't trained to be equipped with the urgency of the day. And that's what we, we've been moving. And so we have some other things that are happening now that are quite exciting because basically the town has said, hey, this is not good enough. We're a progressive city. We so, should be in the forefront. So this isn't just one, uh, one author who's being a curmudgeon and saying, hey, you guys are wrong. There's, uh, there, there, there are others like you in Iowa City that feel that the city is falling short on this. Hey, a poll came out, as you know well, two weeks ago from, from uh, and I found out that uh, Climate change is the number one issue for 82% of all Democrats. Right. Hands down, this is the issue for everybody now. Right. And so we have a, a very exciting movement in Iowa City. And to tell you, Ed, it's not you and it's not me. It's our stinking kids who have said basically, hey, you adults aren't doing enough. Uh, my son is on the ninth week of his climate strike. Wow. And he's been well, holding the, 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 fi the fire to my feet to say, hey, folks. You know, once upon a time, you guys had a great movement. It collapsed. It's about time you go back to your city and your school and your county and now the state to say, you know, we've got to do something better. Yeah, and I would say it's 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 our kids and their stinking parents in some cases, not not all, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, certainly there's a lot more momentum and energy on this from the generation that will have to live with the impacts for a lot longer than we will. And uh, you know, that doesn't negate the fact that you know many of us have been fighting all our lives for a more sustainable approach to, to living on this planet. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to take all hands on deck. And, you know, especially in the, in, with, the, um, with the, uh, the great gaping hole in state and federal government, especially in federal government. But, I mean, here, you know, our state legislature, like, men, like most state legislatures around the country, uh, are basically continuing to move forward with their heads in the sand and so we rely on city governments, on county governments, to begin to move the ball forward. And so, uh, yeah, demanding more from one city government is not at all unreasonable. In fact, it's probably the best starting point. Right. And, then I, and so our point is to say, okay, what are other cities doing? 
So look at the city of Dubuque. You know, many years ago, they already committed to cutting their carbon emissions by 50% by 2030. So they were already in line with IPCC, you know, and then last week they voted to actually hire someone to help the sustainability director to run their climate plan. You know, and the mayor of Dubuque actually went out to the the last um, Paris summit. So there are many towns across Iowa that you know better than anyone who really are taking this serious. And I think our our feeling here in Iowa City is that we have an incredible opportunity. It's it's not something we need to argue about and and battle over. We have a, a, the community behind us. You have a powerhouse university that should be in the forefront of research and scholarship to to work with us and that we should be moving forward. We have an incredible opportunity to do something. And so that's our next step. We have an organization now that's moving forward that has asked the city council to consider an agenda item to do what Zurich did today in Switzerland, and that is cities now need to start declaring that there is a climate emergency, and therefore, if there is a climate emergency, they're going to commit to revamping their climate plans to make sure they're up to IPCC level. Right, and and that's that that takes a that takes commitment across the spectrum. It takes a commitment in the in the realm of transportation, uh, in the realm of uh, building design, in the realm of landscaping and uh, and and food related uh, matters. Uh, you know, it's it's um it's a comprehensive uh, comprehensive strategy is needed. So, yeah, and it takes leadership. And I think that's what my op-ed basically said was, hey, pals, you know, because these are all of our friends now. If you guys don't have the leadership, then maybe this is not your time to be in a position of power. Maybe you need to resign. So, of course, this, is, we, this is an election year for, for cities. Yep. Is this going to be an election issue? I think it will be. We have four city council members who are up for election, and uh, we've reached out to all of them. And they're definitely responding. The mayor has decided to retire, um, and he announced that publicly last week. Right. And yeah, so I, I think we, we, we do have an opportunity to have some new blood, new leadership come to town. I think it's uh, we've had a watershed shift, I think, in thinking on climate action than a few years ago, as you know very well. And we really see that the community sees this as a priority. Um, you know, we've had a huge housing boom in Iowa City. Think about it. If you come to Iowa City, you see all these, you know, growing condos, and that kind of density yeah. is great. Uh-huh. But we, we've added ten thousand people since I moved to town in twenty twelve. Well, in addition to the in addition to the increased density, there's a lot of urban sprawl happening there as well. Exactly, which is, which is not very carbon friendly. Exactly, and so is there any ordinance on energy efficiency? Is there any ordinance? On all new building, you know, think about it. In New York City, that little town of New York City, <laughs> they passed their ordinance last week, their climate plan called the Climate Mobilization Act, that requires all new building to either have a green roof or renewable energy. Yeah. And they're now meeting these incredibly strict energy efficiency. And so that's what we're asking for: is if other cities can do it, Iowa City, Des Moines, Dubuque, Cedar Rapids, we all can be in the forefront. To yep. make this difference. Great. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with us, Jeff. You bet. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll be interested in hearing what kind of um, uh, editorial response uh, appears in the Gazette from uh, from the city manager. <laughs> 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 I imagine they're crafting that response right now, don't you think? <laughs> no, I, I, I think they're hoping it kind of... Uh, 
I think they don't realize that uh, there's a lot of seeds that are flourishing right now. Yeah, it's great seeds for no. change. So. The, one, the thanks, one thing I'd thanks. say is that you know there's there, you know we're really all in this together, and uh, I'm I'm going to bet that 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 the, uh, the folks like you who are concerned about the direction of the city and folks within the city government are probably going to find a way to come together and make this happen. That's my that's my optimistic hope, and um, and I, I don't think it's unreasonable given given the. Um, the increasing consensus that you know, we've got a major problem and we've got to take dramatic action to address it. Right. Yeah. I hope so. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. And once again, if, if we can't have a model program in a city like Iowa City, which is incredibly progressive, incredibly forward-thinking, then I think we, have a, we really have a global issue here. Yeah. Um, and I, and, you know, and yeah. I, I think the, that's where we have to really step up to the plate. Yeah. So thanks you, so much for all you do, Ed. You're welcome. And program. if folks want to follow your work more, you have, you, you've written several books. You've got a website. Where do they go for that? Oh, uh, jeffbiggers.com. Jeffbiggers.com. B-I-G-G-E-R-S. You all right. Thanks, Jeff, for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. Folks, we'll be back in a couple minutes on the Fallon Forum here as we're going to switch gears a little bit, talk about uh, some big-picture climate issues. Back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. That's Brother Trucker, folks, and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, taking a minute to thank some of our other local business partners here in the Des Moines metro uh, thanks to Community CPA and Associates uh, with offices not just in Des Moines but in Iowa City. That's my tax and accounting firm. Give Ying Sa a shout. She's the founder and director. That's Community CPA. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located in Des Moines' historic East Village, that's Hawk Restaurant, H-O-Q, Hawk Restaurant. Thanks also to Sergeant's Garage, located on 6th and College in Des Moines. You know, uh, with Cars um, being, uh, you know, I mean, with, with lots of interest in having your car last longer, that uh, makes a good idea. It's a good idea to give sergeants a shout. They've been, been working on four generations of my vehicles for, gosh, 25 years now. It's Sergeant's Garage. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. All your insurance needs under one roof. That's Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand. Okay, welcome back to the uh, Fallon Forum. We are trying to get our caller on the line here to discuss the uh, Paris, uh, the, the Paradise Fire, and the aftermath of that. How folks are doing with the cleanup effort there and uh, recovery effort? That was um, an incredible experience. So uh, we hope that uh, that uh, that we'll be able to connect with that uh, that caller in a in a minute or two here. In the meantime, I do want to talk about. Um, we just we just got done talking about how 140 plus cities around the country are either declaring a climate emergency or moving forward with restructuring how they, uh, how they, how they, how they fuel themselves uh, in response to the growing urgency of climate change. Well, there are now two countries that have declared a climate emergency. England, well, Great Britain, and then immediately after that, Ireland. Now, you don't always see the Irish following the English. That's, there's, some, there's some historic reason why that doesn't always happen, but... Uh, but, uh, you know, Ireland has been very progressive on a number of fronts, uh, including banning smoking in pubs, uh, which, which seemed like a political, you know, 
you know, death knell for some, but it really, really wasn't. It turned out to be something people just thought, well, that's okay. We can live with that. Um, marriage equality, on a lot of fronts, the Irish have been very progressive. And so um, declaring an, an emergency, a climate emergency um, was significant. Now, uh, the leader of the Irish Green Party, Eamon Ryan, he um, had a, a warning that he he just wanted to make sure people knew that declaring an emergency doesn't mean a thing unless you can back it up with some kind of significant action. And so um, the uh, the current government in Ireland is called Fianna Fáil, and uh, they pushed the amendment to declare the climate emergency. And um, the vote the vote came up. It passed. Um, it passed with a very small number of members. I, I was surprised. I didn't realize you could pass legislation in Ireland with just, with just a few people there, but uh, they did, apparently. And um, so uh, the issue of biodiversity, according to this story here in The uh, Guardian, this issue of the issue of biodiversity uh, is also considered to be um, an emergency problem in Ireland. And I've seen that myself there, the uh, the efforts to move away from burning turf, uh, harvesting turf, uh, even efforts to move away from reforesting bogland in, in timber. Uh, those are those are problematic uh, from a biodiversity and environmental perspective and from a carbon and greenhouse gas perspective. So, um, you know, We'll see where this goes, but the fact that we now have two nations that have declared a climate emergency is significant. Again, um, I imagine there will be other countries that begin to do this as well. And as we've said, there are 140 cities in the U.S. that have done something along those lines. Again, there's not a uniform definition as to what a climate emergency means, but um, there's a growing understanding that the core of that emergency of that declaration is to move as quickly as possible away from fossil fuels so that we can keep the degree, the the the, uh, the amount of global warming to ideally 1.5% Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Although, again, the Paris Accords settled on 2 degrees. And, uh, <laughs> you know, if um, it, it, there's there's scientific... Understanding, I, I'm not sure you can call it a firm consensus, but an understanding that if we get to two degrees, we see a lot more problems uh, globally than if we can hold it to 1.5 degrees. But the big problem, of course, is right now we are on track for four degrees or more. Who knows? Um, it's uh, it's potentially uh, catastrophic. So right now. Um, the fact that cities and nations are moving in that direction is very commendable. We might have our guest on the line. Is this uh, Kendra? Hello. Hello, Kendra. Yes. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Kendra Walters, folks, is uh, an Iowa resident who has uh, a lot of family connections to Paradise, where the campfire um, destroyed what, most of the town last year. Yep. I have my sister, my two nieces. My sister's husband, my grandparents, my aunt, my cousins, well, two cousins, um, my, I'm trying to think, my sister's dad. Again, the fire devastated most of the town, correct? Yes, I think they said 95% of the town. There were some businesses on Skyway that 
was saved, but that's that's amazing. That's that's so incredible and so devastating. How does a town recover when ninety five percent of it is burned like that? Is it is it making an effort to to rebuild to somehow you know bring it back? Yeah, um, slowly people are starting to come back and clear the land for their houses again. My sister is wanting to rebuild. She has a prefab house that's going to be on her land once everything gets cleared. They have to the, um, clear the water because the water is contaminated too now. So they have to You mean like the, that. the reservoir, the lakes, or? Yeah. Um, so they have, to, they have to, for example, drain a lake in order to dredge it and then restore it somehow? can't remember how they're going to mm. do it. Yeah. But I know right now the people that are in Paradise, they're having their water shipped in jugs for right. them. Right. So what what are the risks of uh, of another fire happening in the future? Uh, I mean, was this just a I mean, and I know that there's a there's a strong connection to climate change because of the the um, you know, the increasing increasingly dry conditions that uh, that provide the fuel for this sort of thing, but is this kind of a a thing where you know lighting never strikes twice in the same place, or is it possible that we could see you know uh, another fire in the future? I honestly think that there could be another fire because this, like you were talking about climate change, and you know California had not had over an inch of rain in seven years. Yeah. And that mixed with the windy conditions from the Santa Ana winds hmm. created the perfect firestorm. Yeah, I mean, some of these winds were like 60, 70 or more miles an hour, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. My sister said that she went to her house to get her dogs, and her backyard was on fire. And she turned around the corner. She had propane tanks for her grill in the backyard. She turned around the corner. And all she heard was a pop, 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 and she knew her house was gone. Well, it just happened that fast. Well, yeah. Well, it's it's a very sad situation, and um, I, I hope that, uh, I mean, again, the prognosis going forward is that we're going to see more of this. I mean, maybe not, maybe, maybe not in paradise next time, but who knows where it could happen again. It's just uh, there are so many, um, you know, there's the, the impacts of climate change are, are pretty broad, and it seems like the the you know the curse affecting California and other places in the, in the Western U.S. is a, is the risk of fire. But so is there is there talk about whether it makes sense to rebuild in Paradise or is there a way to to do that that accommodates the the possibility of another fire? I know my sister was talking about trying to kind of fireproof her home. In the, I guess like in making the roof a tin roof. Mm. Having sprinkler systems on the roof where if it catches wind of a fire, it'll try to put it out right away. But I don't know if they're really doing anything, if there's really anything they can do. Right. Um, I just know the people of Paradise are resilient. They are strong. And I know that they want to rebuild because it's their home. Right. Well, it's a beautiful place. and it's, it's not called Paradise for nothing. Right. Yeah. Um, have some people already moved away, given up on it? 
Um, yes, my sister's dad now moved, but he did not like California anyway, oh. but that's besides the point. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and my grandparents are now living um, in Boise, Idaho. Mm. So some, yeah. They don't have nowhere to go anymore. Yeah. And they lived in that house for over fifty years. Wow. And now you're you're originally you are you are from western Iowa, correct? Yes. Yeah. And of course um southwest Iowa re- recently saw the other uh side of uh of uh, of a climate emergency and that was the uh, historic flooding that occurred there. I know there are people in some of those towns, Pacific Junction and Hamburg and other communities that that are still struggling, and they will be struggling for a long time, as will many of the farmers who've who've had you know land destroyed, you know contaminated, covered with sand, um, or grain bins that have burst. I know there are people from those communities who are just going to leave, I, and they're going to they're going to move to higher ground. So I I don't know, uh, you know, you've got you've got a foot in both worlds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had uh, this was just in Glenwood. But they were affected with their water. Mm-hmm. Um, my boyfriend's family lives in Glenwood, and I know they were terrified too that the water would reach them. Thinking, what would we do in case of a flood? Right. And like I said, they they couldn't drink their water for the longest time because right. it was contaminated because of the flood waters. Yeah, I'm like. I got both ends of the spectrum there. Yeah, yeah. And do you think what to what extent do people in let's start with paradise? What, what, to what extent do people in paradise understand that there's a climate change connection to these horrific fires? I think they know. They want to take that chance though, because paradise, like I said, it's home to them. For me, it was a second home too. And the day I heard that that happened, um. I was in tears because yeah. I had just been there last June. So is there still uh, an effort underway to um, provide resources to help people recover? Is there a, a GoFundMe page or something like that? Yeah, I have a GoFundMe for my family, and if I could raise more money, I would love to give it to the city of Paradise. Okay. People but can right find now, that on your face- Facebook page, Kendra Walters, is that correct? Yes. Okay, Kendra K E N D R A Walters, correct? Yes. Okay, and we'll we'll I'll, I'll link to that on my own page as well, so people know where they can go to help out. Yeah. Well, Kendra, thanks uh, thanks so much for joining us. We're running out of time. I appreciate you taking the time to talk uh, during your work day. Well, thank you for giving me the chance to speak a little bit. All right. Well, you take care, and we'll see what we can do to encourage people to continue to support the folks in paradise. Uh, all right. Hey, folks, so thanks, for, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. Listen, continue to listen for on the community-owned stations. We have more talk coming. This is Ed Fallon broadcasting live here in Des Moines on Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Back to the Fallon from Ed Fallon, your host here. Okay, so we're all on planet Earth. One thing we share in common is planet Earth. Well, not so fast. Uh, there are those 
including meteorologist Eric uh, Holthaus, who um, said recently, quote, we don't know a planet like this. What's he talking about? We don't know a planet like this. Well, what he's talking about is the composition of the atmosphere is like nothing human beings have ever experienced. Our species has never lived on a planet with 415 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. That may seem like not a big deal. It is. And remember when, when the climate movement really started picking up steam years ago, uh, we had passed 350 parts per million, and the goal was to get back to that. That was the level, the safe threshold. And, of course, the group 350.org was formed, and all that's happened since then is that we've continued to see, to, to see the parts per million rise. Now it's at 415. When the uh, Great March for Climate Action walked across the country in 2014, we hit 400 at that, that point. Now it's 415. So um, Holthouse writes, not just in recorded history, not just since the invention of agriculture 10,000 years ago, since before modern humans existed millions of years ago. First time ever. And that's a matter of concern. You know, I, we don't quite know where this takes us, but none of the, progno none of the prognoses are positive. Uh, again, with humanity continuing to pump lots of fossil fuels into the atmosphere. We're likely to see that 415 parts per million continue to grow. And I, again, this is just this weekend. I, here's Bill McKibben just um, yesterday, Sunday, May 12th, tweeting, thinking about Mother Nature today. Of course, this is on Mother's Day. As of this morning, her CO2 concentration topped 415 parts per million for the first time in many, many millions of years. So we got a problem. Again, the scientists refer to potentially devastating effects, high levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Will uh, they are they will prevent the Earth's natural cooling cycle from working? That that of course traps heat, and um, you know then those global temperatures continue to shoot up, and the impacts of those of course more more heat. Uh, more energy, more moisture, uh, more moisture in places where moisture is common, thus floods, severe storms, uh, and of course less moisture or less where moisture is less common, worse droughts, Syria, Honduras, worse fires, California, Australia. I mean, the uh, the impacts are only going to get worse. We've got to stop pumping fossil fuels into the atmosphere. We've got, got to stop burning. we just got to do it. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a negotiable uh, uh, you know, commandment anymore. This is, a, this is a commandment from nature, from our mother, who's <laughs> – we all just celebrate our mothers on Sunday. And, again, I think McKibben is right to include Mother Nature in that. And, uh, you know, it's all going to get worse, and we have to brace for that but we also have to stop exacerbating the problem. That's the big challenge right now is to stop exacerbating the problem. So um, one aspect of the problem is the uh, growing rate of extinction. Now they're saying that um, one million out of eight million species on this planet is either extinct or on, on its way to that. Uh, it's tragic. Uh, and we, it's unconscionable that we do nothing. 
And this coincides with a report from the, uh, the head of the UN. Climate change is, quote, running faster than we are. Countries are failing to live up to the commitments made under the 2016 Paris Climate Agreement. And again, that agreement targeted keeping the warming under 2 degrees Celsius, although there was a minority report that I think most countries agreed with that said we really need to try to keep it under 1.5 degrees Celsius. So, um, again, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said the, um, the political will to fight climate change has faded at the time, as, as, as it, right now, as it's getting worse for those feeling its effect. Now, um, that, may be the case, that may be the case, but we're seeing, again, efforts around the world, like, like I said, Great Britain, Ireland, two countries have now declared a climate emergency. And, and again, a cautionary note, as the head of the Irish Green Party pointed out, it means nothing if the declaration is not followed by action. And we'll see what Ireland and England are ready to do in the realm of action. But overall, countries are not living up to the commitments that they made in Paris in December of 2016. And, um, you know, without those, without those commitments, uh, as this um, particular article in Al, Je Al Jazeera points out, quote, a string of apocalyptic reports on the state of the planet is bringing home the need for concrete steps to tackle climate change. And whether that will happen or not is really up to us. And again, I, I think uh, we're seeing momentum. This is, not all gloom, all, this is not all gloom and doom. We are seeing momentum. Again, it's hard to say exactly what kind of uh, impacts we're going to be able to avoid if we do the right thing, but not, you know, doing nothing, and, and it's toast. It's, there's a reason that the organization that's, most, uh, that's gaining the most momentum right now uh, is, is, the, is the Extinction Rebellion. There's a reason it's called the Extinction Rebellion, because not only are we looking at the extinction of other species, but potentially our own. It's that serious. It's that serious. And again, the, um, I, think, I think the head of the UN, um, you know, Guterres, re reminding us that the political will does not seem to be there. And again, he's basing that on the fact that we, we made these commitments, we meaning the nations of the world, made these commitments in Paris. And we have seen, uh, you know, since then, these last two, two and a half years now, we have not seen the kind of momentum necessary to meet those commitments. But again, I have optimism that those that is changing, and I and I and I say that as someone on the ground in the political, you know, epicenter of um, of the presidential campaign here in Iowa, where we have what twenty one, possibly soon to be twenty two presidential candidates running just on the Democratic side, and even the momentum we've seen in the past four and a half months we see a growing awareness among the electorate and among the candidates that climate needs to be treated differently than other issues, that it is a crisis, that is a moment whose time has come if we are going to pull back from the brink. So I'm encouraged by that. And yeah, we may see, it's, it's hard, it's, you can't ignore the fact that nations have not met up to the, have not met the agreements they promised in, in Paris, but maybe that's about to change. It needs to change, and hopefully it is going to change. And hopefully what we can do in Iowa, in New Hampshire, 
South Carolina, Nevada, to where we, where we have a unique opportunity to, to talk with candidates face-to-face. -face. You know, I, I know there are places around the country that are kind of jealous of those four states, and I understand that. And I, for one, would not be averse to rotating the states that get to caucus and hold a primary first. But I would say this. There's an infrastructure involved. There's a kind of an historic, um, you know, there's, there's an institutional memory that comes with um, knowing how to make this work. So be, it, be that as it may, the fact is right now these four states have this opportunity. Other, other states don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> but again, the retail politics that allows us that access to candidates is something we take very seriously. And that we want to make sure that candidates know that when they come to Iowa, and I assume the same thing is happening in New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, that they've got to make sure that they're addressing climate change as a crisis and not just, uh, not just another um, issue to check off the list. Okay, so um, again, they're already... There are already island nations, um, uh, low-lying countries that are being impacted badly by rising sea levels. Uh, one of these is, uh, is, on, is in Australia, where indigenous people live in the uh, Torres Strait Islands. That's off the uh, northeast uh, coast of, um, of Australia. And um, they're actually filing a complaint, a complaint with the UN today, Monday, May 13th, they're accusing the Australian government of breaching their human rights by failing to tackle climate change. There's a good story about this in Al, in Al Jazeera. So the, um, the uh, Torres Strait Islanders are, um, are talking to the Human Rights Committee of the, of the UN um, you know, about what's happening, saying that the rising sea level that's caused by global warming, warming is threatening their homelands, their culture, uh, they have legal representation from uh, Client Earth. That's an environmental uh, law, uh, environmental law nonprofit that's uh, that's supporting the case. That have done done similar work elsewhere. So um, <clears throat> they allege again, they, uh, they allege again that the uh, Australian government has failed to act on climate change, despite knowing what's going on, and that that amounts to a violation of the indigenous community's uh, human rights. We'll see where this goes. This kind of reminds me of the uh, lawsuit filed by 20 or so American teenagers who alleged that the government, um, they, they're suing the government, the federal government, for failing to act to protect their future, despite knowing that, that the climate change is happening. This is, again, despite knowing it for a long time, failing to take action to address it. You know, we'll see where this goes. I mean, there's only, you know, there's only so much you can do. So, again, there, this is a low-lying island nation or island community. And again, there are nations like the Seychelles and the Marshall Islands and, and elsewhere that are probably going to be wiped off the map. And, uh, you know, there's only so much you can do to compensate for annihilation. You know, I mean, the people themselves... Presumably, sea level rise will happen slowly enough where they'll have a chance to relocate, as some are already doing. But, you know, there's a destruction of culture and place and tradition that no amount of money can compensate for. So I, I think it's good that these lawsuits are being brought, you know, in the case of the, uh, the Kelsey versus, uh, 
you know, the U.S. government here in the U.S., in, in the case of this Australian um, indigenous community, to the U.N., I think it's really good that that's happening. I don't know if, um, if any amount of money adequately compensates. I do, I do see that the, uh, the indigenous community has set a, a dollar amount, uh, 14 million Australian dollars. Um, the, the, the demand is that the, uh, the country, that the government of Australia set aside um, actually 20 million Australian dollars, that's 14 million US dollars, for emergency infrastructure such as seawalls to protect the island's residents from rising seas. Again, maybe that'll help slow it down, but I don't see, I don't see you being able to keep the ocean away forever, especially if Greenland melts, if the Antarctic continues to melt the way it's going. I don't see how you keep all that at bay. Uh, just as I don't see how Miami uh, survives sea level rise, South Florida in general. Anyway, um, it's good that these things are happening. I think the momentum is continuing to build despite what the head of the UN says. I think the momentum is building, and let's keep it going, folks, because we have only one planet that we call home. This is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum.